Prepare for an extra, an interview with a famous doctor who can prove Spider-Man is a nut. This is me and my friend Pete, the podcast that explores all things THE Amazing Spider-Man. I'm your host, the mighty monologuing motormouth, Jero. If this is your first time with us, welcome. If it isn't, welcome, 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 welcome back. This week, we're running through THE Amazing Spider-Man number 24, Spider-Man Goes Mad. If you haven't already, please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com hspp in the Key Keeper or High Council tiers where you gain access every week to a bonus episode of me and my friend Pete covering a comic book pulled from High Society's extensive vault collection chosen by you, the listeners. If you sign up before our season one finale, that's one week away, that's episode number 25, you receive a High Society lapel pin. You know fashion is important here on me and my friend Pete and we want to be a part of yours. This week's bonus episode, we're over an icon again to continue Dave Lazuski's jaunt into a world of superheroes that has no superheroes. But being the first comes with a price, and with no other heroes to pound on, makes you public enemy number one. Join us for Kick-Ass Volume 1, Number 3. That's later. Right now? Consider if you will, Peter Parker, shy, lonely bookworm, blessed with amazing powers after being bitten by a radioactive spider. What started as a drama-filled adventure of a New York swashbuckling wall crawler has become a tale of unraveling sanity as his own mind pits the spider against the man. Can the two halves reconcile in time to save his fractured mind? Or will the spider devour the once fearless King of Swing from Forest Hills, Queens? That's now on the Twi Liability Zone. And we're about to find out. We've got me, we've got you, we've got... No further ado, we've got THE Amazing Spider-Man number 24, Spider-Man Goes Mad. Me and my best friend Pete, old adventures, new critiques. He spins webs, I spin yarns, kinda kooky, be forewarned. Look out, it's me and my friend Pete. Credits. The credits on this one, this mighty script was written by smiling Stan Lee. This powerful art was drawn by swinging Steve Ditko. And a lot of lettering was done by sparkling Sam Rosen. Welcome back, Sammy Rosen. We've got the S&S connection in the building, reunited, and it feels so good. The cover. The cover on this one has the amazing Spider-Man in Spidey New Roman, shade midnight blue with Spidey costume red beneath his name on a light blue negative space. Beneath this, slightly off-center to the right, in a chocolate brown caption box and white letters, we get Spider-Man Goes Mad. Beneath that, we get a whole GD madhouse, but we won't even shift our eyes down yet. Let's move them stage right first, where we find a white man standing at his desk with gray hair, his back to us in a green suit, and brown shoes. His desk is wooden, so's the armchair he's standing beside. He's got a desk lamp, a telephone, and one of those large desk organizers. He's got paper scattered about, and everything. The man, the room, the desk, the door he's facing, the windows, the curtains, etc. are almost completely upside down. If 180 degrees is a full flip, 
This entire light blue wall scene is on 174 degree tilt. That's a very specific number. I use the protractor. Back two. So this entire room is upside down. We have this guy standing in the background in front of his desk, stage right. And in the foreground, in the lower center of the page, suited and booted, is Spider-Man. Down on his left knee, his face buried in his right hand, his left thrown out in front of him, fingers wide. He's thrown a door open, I imagine trying to escape the madness of this upside down room. But behind this open door is a wall of gray brick, completely disregarding the fact, if you will, that if the room is upside down, this door is on the ceiling. In front of the bewildered Spider-Man is a translucent image of Lincoln O. Vulture, his back to us and his green full body outfit floating above Spidey's head, his left hand raised to strike, his right out at his side. To Spidey's right, none other than Two-Gun Flint Marco, the Sandman. Also a smaller version of himself, also translucent, also his hands raised in fist, his lower half sand as usual. You know the man doesn't go full human unless he absolutely has to. Spidey's hallucinating two of his greatest foes trying to walk through a door with bricks on the other side of it. Beneath the Sandman, in a brown screen caption box, a startling mystery tale in the mighty Marvel tradition. In front of the open brick block door in a blue caption box, another smashing offbeat thriller for the great new breed of magazine reader. For you. Let's get into it. Page one opens to the sign of the spider next to the tagline. The shocker you never expected to read. And title of this issue, Spider-Man Goes Mad. In red, in a goldenrod yellow screen box on a blue negative space. Beneath this, we find ourselves in a psychologist's office extending from that blue negative space. There are shelves lined with books staged left, a desk on a dresser, a painting on the wall, and a stool behind a man with sandy brown hair, horn-rimmed glasses, and his right hand to his chin of his long white face. And extending from his left ear is a wire attached to a device that's hooked to his lapel. This is a hearing aid circa 1965. This in totality is the guy from the cover. He's in a deer tan suit, black shoes, and green pinstripe tie. White cufflinks hold the sleeves of his white dress shirt clothes. He's standing contraposto, his right hand to his chin, a look of concern on his face as he stares down at his leather psychiatrist couch where we find the greatest superhero to ever crawl into a pair of spandex in the throes of agony. Spidey is laying on the couch, the head of the leather stage right, and he's suited, booted, and every muscle is flexed in a pose of agony. He's got his left leg slightly bent at the knee, the foot resting on the bumper of the couch, his right foot is off of the couch, the toes pressed against the floor, he has his right hand up towards the ceiling and his left covering his eyes as if to say, whoa, is me. And all around him, yellow lights dance, bouncing off the walls, floor, and ceiling of the room. On top of this insanity, ghostly shadows of 008, that's Dr. Octopus, Lincoln O. Vulture, that's the Vulture, dance above his head, while Flint, Two-Gun Marco, that's the Sandman, rises from the floor near his foot, only a torso, head, and arms. Spidey's gone mad indeed. We turn the page. The story opens, as it often does, to a caption box. This is the house Peter Parker lives in, and what could be more natural than finding Peter Parker himself inside? The doorbell has just rung, 
Peter's just answered it. And away we go. And Pete's in the foreground, a white pinstripe tie beneath a goldenrod yellow vest, of course, and green slacks. He's doing the green slacks. No SJBs for Pete today. He's in the kitchen digging into a red cookie jar to pay the delivery man who's waiting near the side door with a large white box in his hands. The delivery man says this is COD, that's cash on delivery, which is something that doesn't happen much anymore. You purchase something and pay when it arrives? Madness. Either way, Pete owes the delivery man $6.75 and digging in the cookie jar, realizes there's not much money left in it. He pays the guy and tells him to keep the change anyway. Pete tips, he's a good guy. He takes the box and realizes it's a new hat for a tea party Aunt May is going to at Anna Watson's house. The aunt of the girl May is constantly trying to fix Pete up with. Pete thinks, poor Aunt May, no matter how she scrimps and pinches pennies, we just can't save any money. I've gotta help out somehow, and I know just the way to do it. And you already know his next move. He gets suited, he gets booted. And exactly five minutes later, is web swinging above the city thinking that he hasn't sold any pictures to Jameson in a while. So with his trusty belt camera, he's going to go on a donuts and dimes patrol. Of course, with Spidey's luck, the city's quiet as he lands on a sheer wall of a building thinking there isn't so much as a jaywalker outside. That is, of course, until the brown slacked, green jacketed body of Sneaky Pete is spotted by Spidey creeping into a ground floor shop window as he watches from above. Spidey wanted something bigger, but thinks this beats a picture of the Brooklyn Bridge and sets up his camera on the wall of the building, thinking all he has to do is sit back and wait. So Spidey does exactly that. But before very long, the Berber gang comes crawling out of the shop window. Four of them, so you know that sneaky Pete in the tan pants and green jacket. Nails in a green suit and white t-shirt beneath it with brown loafers. Pee Wee in a lavender suit and olive shoes. Badger in a maroon suit. And of course, Jesse Pink in a baseball glove brown suit. They're all empty handed and their luck is only going from bad to worse as Spidey, gripping a web line in each of his hands, leaps from the side of the building screaming, Hi guys, you're just in time for fun and games. Sneaky Pete screams, Look, it's Spider-Man. Jesse pulls a pistol and the game's afoot. Literally. Spidey kicks Jesse Pink and nails across the face. Jesse's gun goes flying, both men follow suit and they're already two down. Of course, the remaining Burbas try to dash away, but Spidey's in rhythm now. He hits the ground quipping for the Burbas to, wait, don't be shy, hang around a while. Tripping Badger with his right foot and uppercutting Pee-wee with a left hand, the whole time thinking he really doesn't want them to run because they need to stay in camera range. Sneaky Pete tries to rush Spidey from behind, but Spidey gets slow and keeps working. His body weight pressed on his left foot, he throws his left fist back in a no look up and under, tapping Pete's chin and throws a right overhand cross, buckling <laughs> Spidey hit Pee-wee so hard, his pants ride up and we see he's got on some snazzy sky blue socks, but they didn't save him. He's out cold. In a huh. small hop, Spidey throws out his fist and in a flash, Sneaky Pete and Pee-wee are done. We get a great panel of Spidey, his back to us, standing over a pair of shoes facing north. The last position you want your shoes to be in when you're trying to get away. Another Berber gang plot foiled as Spidey's spider sense goes off. He turns with a clenched fist, ready to clobber whoever it is, but it's only the brown-haired, mustached Frederick Foswell in his forest green suit and blue fedora, a small white card that reads press sticking from the band of his hat. Holding white sheets of paper in his left hand, he holds up his right and afraid of a clobbering, he shouts, don't look at me that way, Spider-Man. I'm not one of that gang, I'm a reporter. 
but Spidey's not taking any chances. He doesn't trust Foswell and knows the former gang leader is too cunning and spends too much time around Peter Parker to have any interactions with. Drag the lunk. Peter Parker can't sell pictures of that robbery to Jameson now. Spidey leaps onto the side of a building and sailing it gets out of there without a word to Foswell. He grabs his camera between pages and on a nearby rooftop to open page four, pulls the film from inside of the camera, exposing the negatives to light, destroying them. Because Foswell didn't see Pete taking the photos, Spidey thinks Foswell will suspect his real identity if Peter Parker suddenly popped up with photos at the Daily Bugle to a scene he wasn't on. So Spidey's plans of getting photos ruined. He changes back into his civilian gear and thinking since he's in the neighborhood of 39th Street, 2nd Avenue, Midtown, Limestone Building, you can't miss it. Because he's always in this area, he's gonna pay a visit to Betty Brandt. Walking through the Daily Bugle bullpen, he thinks that maybe Betty can give him a lead on some photography work, but has to duck behind a cubicle divider into the next panel as the miserable magnate J. Jonah Jameson himself stomps by in chocolate brown pants, the sleeves of his white collared shirt rolled up, his green tie whipping behind him. Copy boy, where blazes is that blasted copy boy? Pete dashes from behind the cubicle thinking he wouldn't want to be the copy boy when Jameson finds the kid and ducks again. This time ducking down beside the one and only Betty Brandt's desk where she's sitting doing paperwork in a purple vest and lavender skirt and turtleneck. Her bob flawless as usual. Pete whispers to Betty asking if she has a moment to talk to a fella and Betty surprised to see him ask what he's doing on the floor. He holds a finger to his lips like shh whisper and says he's down there hiding from old Stoneface. We get a great panel of Betty leaning on her desk, staring over the side at a crouched Pete. She tells him JJ's bark is worse than his bite and that Pete looks ridiculous hiding behind a desk like that. But when Pete tries to stand up, she forces him back down by the head, scattering her papers, letters, and notes. And I'm sure Betty's just being funny at this point because the only person passing by is Foswell and he has no authority to get at Pete for being in the office. Pete knows it. He says, Ow! Now I know how the three stooges must feel. And while Betty's got her hand forcing him to stay down, Pete picks up her letters and papers and reads the address on one of the letters in shock. It's outgoing from Betty to Ned Leeds, Jameson's young demon reporter stationed in Europe at the moment. Pete's eyes go wide immediately. He holds up the letter to open page five, showing it to Betty whose mouth falls open. She's shocked that he found it. She says, oh, you, you found my letter. Pete, his hair must, his bottom jaw hidden by the desk, replies, Couldn't help it, Betty. It fell right into my hands. I didn't know that you were still writing to Ned. And this letter did fall right into his hands. But last issue? It didn't fall into his hands. Pete picked it up off of the desk. So Pete knows now that Ned is writing to Betty, which upset him enough. But this right here, this is high treason in his eyes because Betty is writing back. And we get great visual storytelling in the next panel. Nobody's passing by now. But Pete doesn't rise from the floor. He sits with his knees up to his chest, his arms resting on his knees with a sullen look on his face as Betty tries to explain. She says Ned hit her up from Europe because he was lonely and didn't have any friends there and all that. Pushing up from the floor, Pete, Betty on a million says, it's sort of brought out the mother instinct in you, ain't? And Betty is taken aback. She says she's never heard him use that tone with her before asking if Pete's angry. His back to Betty, Pete storms off saying, why should I be angry? Just cause my girl writes to some other fella. I gotta go now. Regards to your pen pal. I was about to throw a flag until the next panel. Consumed by a nagging jealousy and hating himself for it, 
Peter Parker again changes to Spider-Man as he swings through the city, trying to drive the disappointment from his mind. Spidey, suited and booted, high above the city, thinks he and Betty aren't engaged, so he shouldn't care who she writes about. And he's right. Betty Brandt doesn't belong to anyone, and he isn't thinking about her when he's walking the blonde bandit home, so he's finally thinking properly. Turn about, my people, those turn tables. Spidey lands on the side of a building thinking he needs to get home, wondering if Foswell and Jameson are going to use the story of Spidey catching the burglars in the Daily Bugle's evening edition. While Spidey's wondering about it, Cosmic Timing has Foswell and Jameson in the miserable magnate's office discussing that very thought, both men smoking. Foswell's a goon, so he's puffing a Pall Mall, JJ's chomping a cigar, as usual. Foswell says it was just a couple of punks, nothing serious, and Jameson, a sheet of copy in his hands, leans on his desk and once again is making the news. Maybe we could hook it up a little. How about writing it as though Spider-Man is the villain? We could say he was brutal to those misguided crooks. When Foswell doesn't reply to this saucy bit of editorial gerrymandering, JJ presses, reminding Foswell of his past history with the wall crawler. Spider-Man is the one who sent you to jail months ago, Foswell. How do you feel about him now? Foswell says he tries not to think about it anymore, but we know he's lying because he's frowning with his back to JJ, and he's frowning so hard that every wrinkle line on his face looks like it's been carved with a chisel into marble. JJ, sensing he can't convince Foswell to fabricate the news, tells him fine, give the story to the Sob sisters and for them to make sure they put some schmaltz in it. So I learned two things here. I didn't know the Sob sisters is a journalist back then, mainly women who wrote stories of sentimentality or sob stories. And schmaltz is Yiddish for rendered animal fat, specifically chicken fat created by Ashkenazi Jewish people. But when used how JJ is using it here as slang means excessively sentimental. So long story short, JJ's telling Foswell to take his story to be doctored so that Spidey's the villain as usual, and the Burba gang, the poor, unfortunate recipients to an unwarranted tail kicking. As Foswell walks away pissed, the smoke from the cigarette in his mouth wafting stage left, Jameson thinks that Foswell may very well be the one guy who hates Spidey more than he does. But Foswell was cool until this moment. JJ riled him up, so that remains to be seen. In the final panel, we get a close-up on JJ's face, his eyes wide and mad, his mustache short and stubby. I love the way his fingers are gripping his cigar, pointer and middle finger on top, ring and pinky on the bottom. And JJ's just had another big idea, the type that keeps him on top of the paper magnate heap. Say, that gives me a great idea for a new series. Instead of me always writing editorials against him, I'll print other people's opinions about why they all hate him. The very next day, Jonah Jameson has reporters interviewing people all over town. And we get Billy on the street getting sound bites 1960s style. Microphone in his left hand, his PlayStation sized tape recorder in his right, attached by a thin coiling cord. He shoves his microphone into the face of a woman wearing a green mink hat and all green everything else as others mill around. One guy in a pork pie hat is staring at us in the foreground and pointing at Billy as if to say, we can make the paper my people, come on. And Billy's going right for the good stuff. He jabs the mic into Green Mink's face, asking her why she hates Spider-Man. When Green Mink says she never said she hated Spidey, Billy snaps. Look, do you want your name and picture in the paper, or don't you? Green Mink says fine, give her a moment. She can think of a reason. And where she struggles to find reasons, the rest of New York has plenty. The next panel, we get headshots of no less than five people giving us their true feelings on the wall crawler. Hint, hint, wink, wink, none of them are good. If you ask me, he's too creepy looking in that mask and costume. Everyone knows he's a public menace. 
I say he should be put in jail. For life! But honest man would patrol the city at night the way he does. If he ain't just a plain crook, why don't he tell everybody who he is? Answer me that. I say he's a coward. He fights and then runs away. But we already know Pete's least favorite person is Spidey's number one booster. And Flash, fashion on, eh, green turtleneck, lavender pants, it's not a bad look. Thompson, followed by Liz Allen in a red sequin shirt and brown skirt, along with the goldenrod kid Peter Parker, fights his way through the crowd towards Billy on the street, screaming that he wants to speak to that crumb. He gets up into Billy's personal space and gives him a piece of his mind. Look, Big Mouth, my name's Flash Thompson, and I'm captain of the Midtown High football team. I think Spidey's the greatest, and you better print that. But Billy understands his assignment. He knows who he works for, and he knows how his bread is buttered. He tries to get out of there. He apologizes to Flash, saying he's all out of tape, and scurries up the street. But Flash isn't letting the press men off so easy. He follows the reporter West Winging, that's the walk and talk, the whole time. Flash tells Billy that if he only records the Spider-Man hate, the only tape the man's gonna need is adhesive tape. To put on that fat lip I'll give you, do you read me? And Billy, coppin' please left and right, says no worries, that the bugle tries its best always to be fair. Lion! Telling Flash he has to run, he does literally that, breaking into what I imagine is a mad dash away from Midtown High's star athlete. Meantime, Liz Allen, Flash's reluctant girlfriend, speaks to Peter Parker. I just want to point out, if you're in a relationship reluctantly, you should probably do whatever's in your power to not be in that relationship. I'm not saying I know everything, but that seems like kind of a given. Back to Liz starts with a compliment, then has a request. She tells Pete that he's the biggest brain at Midtown High and asks if he can do her a favor. And Pete replies with the right answer. He says he'll do anything he can. That's important. Never give a straight yes without knowing exactly what the favor is. But Liz's favor isn't a crazy ask. She tells Pete she's doing poorly in science and wonders if Pete can coach her sometime so she can get her grades up. Pete says, of course, that he'd be happy to do it. Great power. You already know the rest. Of course, Flash catches up to them at this moment to find Liz caressing Peter's face, saying thanks. Does he snap? No. Oddly enough, he actually holds it together, but he's thinking that he hates that egg-headed bookworm. I'll prove that I'm the one she's nuts about. That's what he thinks. Nuts. An open seven approaching Liz, telling her he was just looking for her. But it's a great panel. Liz holds up a finger like, hold that thought, saying, sorry, Flash, I can't stop now. I have to run. Toodaloo. And walks off leaving Flash alone with our favorite teenager and his least favorite person. Flash is pissed. He wonders aloud why Liz had time for Pete and not for him. Pete, his hands in his pockets, already walking away, lets Flash know his take on things. Why would anyone want to talk to you, Birdbrain? It gets boring using nothing but one-syllable words. Flash is tight. He balls both fists and wraps his arms around his chest with bloodlust in his heart. It won't mean anything to beat him up now while no one's looking. But someday, when I get the chance with a crowd around... That's what he's thinking. While Pete, not stressed at all by the Brandex kid, strolls away pitying Flash for hating and loving him at the same time. And Flash needs to stop fronting. He is once again swimming down that river we all know to be denial. Talking about when he gets a crowd around. If you recall, in The Amazing Spider-Man number 8, that's... To infinities. Here on Me and My Friend Pete, Flash got that chance with a crowd around. And Pete, bing, boom, boom, bing, bing, boom, 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 bing. Two times he knocked my man Flash down. That second time he knocked him out cold. 
Flash needs to just understand that he may not believe it, he may not remember it, but there is a reason his subconscious seems to be keeping him out of a fight with the golden rod kid, Peter Parker. He needs to trust his instincts. He does not want that problem. Back to, meanwhile, the first of Jameson's new anti-Spider-Man series hits the streets and almost immediately becomes the talk of the town. We've got a crowd reaction shot of people in front of Sal's newsstand reading the papers. A black guy with red hair says that he never thought Spidey was so bad, but everybody else does, so he must have been wrong. A white guy with auburn hair agrees, saying Spidey must be a menace if everyone's saying it. A brown-haired white woman in a red sun hat says she's writing to the mayor, wondering why Spidey isn't behind bars. Another white guy, brown hair in a pork pie hat, says they ought to start a petition, put a little democracy in action against the King of Swing. And in the office of Jonah Jameson, all is sweetness and light. JJ the triumphant playing trumpets to his ego. He's holding a newspaper high in his right hand, his cigar higher in his left. He has a third hand patting himself on the back for coming up with such a genius brainstorm. And to be fair, it really was a great idea on his part. By using the people to voice their feelings against the webhead, this time, nothing can backfire on him. While he's celebrating, Betty escorts the peace psychiatrist from page one into the room. She says his name is Ludwig Reinhardt. German surname means brave and counsel, which I think is a nice touch, living his name. And Jameson says Reinhardt, ahem, Dr. Reinhardt can come in. Jameson's feeling so good, he'd see anybody today. Reinhardt, knob cane in his left hand, Hamburg hat in his right, steps into the room with the Reed Richards working on his sandy brown hair, saying, I am here on vacation from Europe. As a peace psychiatrist, I am very interested in reading about this Spider-Man of yours. I have handled cases similar to his. From my experience, I can say he is a very, very sick man. Both men take seats, Reinhardt lights a pipe, and continues. He says Spidey's living in a fantasy world. Don't we know it? That our hero wants to be a spider, but because he's a human being, his id and ego are going to get so confused that he's going to forget who he really is and have a nervous breakdown. So id and ego are psychology talk and represent different aspects of the human mind. Id being human instinct and ego being conscious decision making. Jameson, puffing his cigar, says this all sounds wonderfully logical, but wonders how the doctor can be sure. And I wonder the same. We turn the page and we're on... The Infinity, Infinity Page. Page 8. Just in time to witness the doctor standing and placing his hat on his head. He's not offering any explanations. He offers proof of his theory instead, telling JJ he has a ton of data he can show him. JJ says, cool, come back tonight and we can talk about your proof. As soon as the doctor exits, JJ, busy man that he is, gets way past busy enough. He grabs the receiver of the phone on his desk and tells the switchboard operator to connect him to the press room. Prepare for an extra. An interview with a famous doctor who can prove Spider-Man is a nut. That's what he says. A nut. JJ calls to Betty who's at his side in an instant and tells her to round up the editors fast. And the next day. After Ludwig Reinhardt has presented his findings to Jameson. We're in the den of the Parker home in Forest Hills, Queens. A maid standing in the background in a green sweater and maroon dress. Holding a knitting kit in her hands with a worried expression on her face. As she watches Pete in the foreground reading the Daily Bugle. And Pete is sweating. Flop sweating. As he reads page one. Gosh, some European psychiatrist claims that Spider-Man is a mental case. He says he's sure to crack up real soon. And why is Pete so shocked and scared in this moment? He just found out and he thinks he's going to go crazy because some guy from Europe said so. All this proves is Pete is a neurotic. 
But is the doctor correct? We don't know yet, but we know that Pete is neurotic at least. But we've already known that. We knew that from page two, Amazing Spider-Man number two. Back to. And May knows it too. She thinks Pete's being dramatic, saying they shouldn't put all that alarming crime news in the paper for kids to read. Pete checks his emotions, thinking he almost gave himself away. May continues saying that if anyone asks her, Spider-Man should be thrown in prison like any other menace to society. And no disrespect, auntie, but nobody asked you. Pete ignores her comment and grabs the phone instead, thinking he needs to call Betty and see what she knows about the good Dr. Reinhardt. And Betty's got all the deets as any secretary would. It's good to have friends in high places. Shout out to the secretaries. Betty says, Yes, Peter, the article is true. It seems that Dr. Ludwig Reinhardt is a famous European psychiatrist who is an expert on cases like this. He is convinced Spider-Man will soon become a mental case. Peter, why don't you say anything? Pete's not saying anything because he's just gone pale and he's sweating again. He hangs up the phone, grabs his jacket and heads towards the door, lost in thought. This is awful. What if I'm cracking up and I don't know? I've got to find that down. Talk to him. Make him realize he's wrong. We get a great panel of him throwing his jacket on outside of his house where Flash Thompson is hiding behind what I assume is a mulberry bush, being a weasel. Flash thinks that he just called Liz's house and she wasn't home. So Flash came here to see if she was with the Goldenrod Kid and thinks wherever Pete's headed now, he'll find Liz there. Creep life, thy name is Thompson. But it is virtually impossible to trail someone who possesses a spider sense without being detected. Hence... Flashing full-on stalker mode in the final panel, hiding behind a corner, watches Pete stroll up the block towards us. But Pete knows he's there and knows he has to shake him. So Pete pulls his spidey signal from his belt to open page 9, adds some webbing to it, and as soon as he spins the block, he turns the signal on and tosses it above his head. Does Spidey get the hit? Of course he gets the hit! And the spidey symbol lights up the dusk, illuminating a nearby wall and catching Flash's attention, who turns to stare at it, enthralled. Pete uses the distraction to break into a run down the street. In the time it takes for the light on the spider signal to go out, Pete's gone. Lost to the night and Flash Thompson. While at the Daily Bugle, JJ and Betty are burning the candle on both ends as we watch them through the window of JJ's office. Betty's holding the receiver of JJ's desk phone and relaying to JJ that Dr. Reinhardt is going to be over later with evidence of Spidey's insanity. JJ says no worries, that he'll wait all night for this type of news. Spidey, never far away from 39th Street, suited and booted, web swings onto a nearby rooftop where a black cat walks along the edge of a windowsill. Luckily for Spidey, it's walking behind him and not crossing his path. He's thinking he's going to stop into JJ's office to bully the miserable magnate into letting him know where he can find Dr. Reinhardt because he needs to see the man. But then, at that very instant, there is a flash of light on the rooftop and Spidey standing face to face with 008 himself, Dr. Octopus, who's wearing Tim colored shirt and pants to match. Doc Ock doesn't say one word. He doesn't make a sound either as his arms race towards Spidey. Spidey throws his own arms up to defend himself thinking, Dr. Octopus, but what's he doing here? And, and how did he get through a solid wall? But as quickly as the one-man hands team arrived, he vanishes. And Spidey, already on edge from the Daily Bugle article, is bewildered. He's gone. Vanished. Right before my eyes. But this is mad. Impossible. He's not a magician. How? Before he has time to catch his breath, however, he's accosted again. Another flash of light as that black cat watches from a nearby ledge. Two-gun Flint Marco, a.k.a. The Sandman rises from the roof, 
torso, arms, and head in his signature tight green shirt, his muscles bulging. Spidey is in shock, wondering what kind of trap he stumbled into. If I were him, I'd be shocked too. Two of my greatest villains have just popped up out of nowhere. Man, oh man, I think I might just start wearing diapers in this suit. Spidey thinks the Sandman is just as quiet as Doc Ock, and just like with Dr. Octopus, Spidey resorts to play one from the Golden Liability Playbook. Fist! Swing him if you got him! He throws a punch that I'm sure was in the Sandman's head flying into the nearby wall. But the Sandman disappears on the spot as quickly as he came, leaving Spidey to think all of this is impossible. But page 11 opens to Spidey, his hand on his head, on the cusp of a panic attack. Or, or did it really happen? What if that doctor is right? This could be the start of my crack up. He leaps from the rooftop, huh. web swinging away, saying that he heard of this before. That when a person loses their mind, it starts with the hallucinations and Spidey needs time to think. And all the creatures of the dark are out tonight as a bat flies behind him. But Spider-Man doesn't notice the marsupial. He wonders aloud if he really is becoming a schizoid. If his double identity is breaking his brain. Perhaps this double identity bin is finally getting to me. And with all my power, if I ever should lose my marbles, I really would be a terrible menace to mankind. But once again, before Spider-Man can fully marshal his frightening thoughts, another arch enemy seems to materialize out of nowhere. And the winged king of the Silver Age skies is suddenly in front of the wall, directly in front of where Spider-Man's swinging, his green wings raised high, ready to attack. We've got Lincoln O. Vulture, my people, and Spidey, again, is not taking any chances. He thinks the Vulture is just as silent as his other rogues, and swinging on those two with his fist was ineffective. So Rule 2 says he goes straight to the shooters. Spidey lets out a line of webbing at the green wing tyrant with his right hand, but the Vulture, like Dr. Octopus and the Sandman before him, vanishes as quickly as he came. Spidey knows something's really wrong now, and we do too. The kid can't trust his eyes, or his senses. He swings to a nearby rooftop to open page 12, thinking to himself that he's too much of a risk to be near anyone right now. Throwing his head back, bracing on the wall, both hands covering his eyes, he thinks, and what if it gets worse? What if I lose control completely? What if I can't tell what's real from what's imaginary? Sliding down the wall, the already neurotic hero is spiraling. He's worried now that he won't be able to tell the difference between innocent people and criminals that he could hurt someone and then he'd have to be locked away. Sprinting along the edge of a ledge in the next panel, Spidey's thinking that maybe all he needs is a good night's sleep. He rushes through the front door of the Parker home, his thoughts racing, thinking that maybe he's been trying too hard, worrying too much. But then, quite by accident, the tormented youth glances toward the mirror and sees Pete is ashen-faced. In his thoughts, it, it, it's worse than I thought. I'm white as a ghost. I must be in a state of complete shock, leading us into the panel of the week. In a goldenrod negative space, Pete is blanketed in a red horror tint. Sweat running down his face, his eyes wide and bulging, his mouth ajar. My people, Pete has no top lip. It has disappeared into his frantic thoughts. And his thoughts? But how did it happen so suddenly? I was feeling fine. Or I imagined I was. Footsteps! It must be on me! Can't let her see me this way! May heard Pete come in and she's going right into mommy mode, spoiling her nephew. She's carrying cake and a glass of milk for the kid. But if Pete's worried about hurting strangers, we gotta know he's never going to take the chance of harming Aunt May. 
He grabs a newspaper from the den's armchair and rushes out of the front door in the final panel, heading to find help. Medical help. May, standing in the doorframe to open 13, still carrying the cake and milk, stares into the darkness of the evening, thinking this just isn't like Peter. Her hand at her chin in the next panel, she holds the open door, thinking, I'm sure he heard me, yet he dashed out without even answering. Something must be troubling the poor boy. If, if only he'd confide in me and let me help him. Why are most teenagers so reluctant to confide in those who love them? But believe me, May, you know I normally agree with that sentiment, but right now, Pete's not like most teenagers in this moment. Furthest from it, actually. While May's wondering how to get her nephew to open up to her, her nephew is suited and booted across town in another suburb. And the newspapers in the 616 universe don't respect privacy at all. Spidey's found Dr. Reinhardt's home address in the paper in an article. Why would that information need to be in a newspaper? But here we are, because Spidey's thinking, I gotta see him, can't put it off any longer. He approaches the doctor's front door and rings the doorbell. A voice from the intercom beside it responds. The door is open, please come in and be seated. Thank you. And the door swings open automatically. Spidey enters a dim vestibule where a goldfish sits in its bowl, stage right, and Spidey is deep in thought. I mustn't get cold feet now. I've gotta go through with it. There's no other way. Even though he's never met me, Dr. Reinhardt predicted I'd crack up. He must understand my case better than I do. And we've seen Spidey doubt his powers before, but Spidey tends to be pretty confident when it comes to his mind and his intelligence. So seeing him think someone knows him better than he knows himself is scary. And remember, this is all taking place in the span of one day. Spidey's going from confident in his thoughts and thought processes and his mind to believing he's cracking up. So he could really be losing it. He makes his way down a darkened hallway towards a room where light is spilling out through a doorway at the end of the corridor. The whole time thinking he never wanted to see a psychiatrist for fear that they discover his secret identity. But now, concerned that he's a threat to others, he feels he has no choice. If anyone's wondering why I say psychiatrist, I love the Animaniacs. All right, that should, that should tell you everything you need to know. I love the Animaniacs, so they're always going to be a P-psychiatrist. Back to. But then, as he reaches the doorway and peers inside, the costume crusader cannot repress an involuntary cry of alarm as his heart seems to sink within him. Both hands at his face, Spidey, surprised, screams. Oh no! No! Not again! 14 opens to a long horizontal of Spidey standing in the doorway of the P-Psychiatrist's office. Dr. Reinhardt is sitting at his desk, stage left, reading some papers. Spotting Spider-Man, he says, Come in, Spider-Man. I have been most anxious to meet you, you unfortunate fellow. Do not be afraid. I shall do my best to help you. None of this is odd at all, until we focus in on our favorite webhead, who's screaming, Everything's upside down! But I'm not standing on the ceiling. I'd know if I were on the ceiling. Or, would I? And everything is upside down indeed. We're in the room from the cover and everything is topsy-turvy except for Spider-Man. The desk, the counters, the waste paper basket, the P on P psychiatrist, upside down, all on the ceiling. If you think I'm kidding, Dr. Reinhardt's words and his word balloons are upside down. You gotta flip the comic to read it. Or the floor and Spidey's on the ceiling. At least that's what he's thinking. He dashes from the room, covering his face, descending into madness. The doctor races towards him, stopping in the doorframe of the office, telling Spider-Man to come back, that he's safe here. But Spidey isn't hearing it. I can't take the chance. I might turn on you. 
think you're someone else. Attack you. I can't trust myself any longer. But then, upon reaching the entrance hall again, the panicky crime fighter finds. Now, the vestibule that Spidey entered is upside down. The door, the mirror on the wall, the goldfish in the bowl swimming. Spidey screams that the hallucinations are coming faster and faster, that he can't control them. And now, I, I must remain here. I don't dare run out into the street. Among all those innocent people, Spidey has to stay here and figure it out. And so, the anguished lad turns back, his head spinning, his heart beating wildly, dazed, confused, not knowing where to turn, not knowing what to believe. Dr. Reinhardt, with concern etched into his face, places a comforting hand on Spidey's shoulder, telling our hero to go with him because he can help. Spidey, hands still covering his face, I imagine there is a singular tear running down the left side of his face or up towards the ceiling. Who even knows anymore? Spidey pleads. Don't let me harm anyone. Please. Please. The doctor says he won't, that he only wants to study Spidey and learn what's troubling him because a case like Spidey's will make medical history. Never before has a trained analyst probed the subconscious of a superpowered celebrity like you. In the final panel, he walks Spidey back to the vestibule saying first, he needs Spidey's complete trust. Reinhardt pulls the webhead's hands down from his face to show Spidey that the room is exactly as it's supposed to be. Everything on the floor, the door, the mirror, the fish swimming in its bowl. Spider-Man's relieved. He looks at the fish in its bowl and steadies himself. He's not going to give up hope yet. Dr. Reinhardt leads our hero back into his office to open page 15, telling Spidey it'll be a haven for him. Spidey takes a seat on the P-Psychiatrist's couch, his hand back to his face. Spidey spent 90% of this issue with his hand to his head, and it's a little comical to say, but Ditko's working because it's conveying his sense of worry and self-doubt perfectly. It's the little tricks of the trade, and you know Ditko knows them all. Nothing says anguish like a Ditko hand-to-face moment. Ask Betty Brant, ask May Parker, and now ask the King of Swing from Forest Hills, Queens, Spider-Man. Back to Spidey says he's been having hallucinations since page 10, and here he is, five pages later, still struggling with them, that they keep coming and going. And P-Psychiatrist Reinhardt replies, Of course, it is to be expected. You have been leading a double existence for too long. Your mind can no longer stand the strain. You are in grave need of prolonged P-Psychotherapy. Spidey better just go ahead and sign up for the deluxe package. That's a full-on straitjacket, padded walls, and paper cups. Because not a second after the doctor finishes talking, Spidey's hallucinations come back. He's seeing 008 Dr. Octopus. He's seeing Lincoln O. Vulture, The Vulture, The Laser Light Show. A full-on meltdown. Spidey screams at Reinhardt saying they're all around him. And Reinhardt says, I don't see anything. He grabs Spidey by the shoulders trying to hold the golden liability down, but Spidey can't be held. He screams, but why don't they seem so real? I see them. I tell you, I see them as clearly as I see you. Flailing wildly as lights dance around him that only he can see. And Reinhardt tells him to sit back and shut his eyes. That this moment is just another symptom of Spidey's growing schizophrenia. Not daring to disobey, Spider-Man does as he is told. And then... Seconds later, the images vanish as Spidey sits with his head back and arms up like he's got a nosebleed and being held hostage at the same damn time. It's a hilarious looking panel. Gives me, you're tearing me apart, vibes. 
All the while, Reinhardt is telling Spidey that the fact that the hallucinations are coming and going means that Spidey's not doomed yet, that he's not completely divorced from reality. Reinhardt tells Spidey to lie down and let his mind go blank, that they're going to get started immediately. Spidey's in a gorgeous shot in profile next, his left elbow on his knee, his left hand back at his forehead. He's thinking, I must do as he says. I must trust him. I have no one else to turn to. Any port in a storm and Spidey's chosen the port of peace psychiatrist Reinhardt. But now, we must turn our attention to the offices of the Daily Bugle once again, although only for a short time. Betty and JJ are still in the office. Betty works such long hours, she brings a change of clothes at this point because now she's wearing a sequined royal purple vest and matching skirt. She's at her desk in the foreground wondering how much overtime she's going to have to work tonight when she notices Frederick Foswell, former crime boss, current reporter, approaching JJ in the background. Foswell's in a green suit, blue fedora with matching bow tie, and he's probably been the only man busier than JJ since he's gotten out of the pen. He is in double time with his step and shouts that he needs to see Jameson right away. Stopping in the next panel, he jerks his thumb over his shoulder saying, It's about Ludwig Weinhardt. I don't know what Foswell said to JJ, but it can't be good. JJ smacks himself in the forehead screaming. Oh no! And after all the write-ups I gave him in the paper, I'll be a laughingstock again! I can't remember the last time JJ's released an issue of the Daily Bugle that didn't need a retraction. That's because it's never happened. What has happened? The busy man being way past busy enough storms off, shouting to Foswell to kill the feature they're running that he's going to speak with Dr. Reinhardt himself. And the way JJ throws the tails of his suit jacket behind him, I'm convinced he's finna smack the hot rod, spit out of Reinhardt. Anyways, Foswell says yes sir, Betty thinks that JJ looks furious and wonders what Foswell could have said. And now Betty's stressed. She thinks that she'll be in the office all night because she can't leave the office deserted. She thinks about her best guy Peter, wonders what he's doing and hopes he still isn't mad at her. Meanwhile, it seems that Peter Parker is the subject of many thoughts. Flash, fashion on, is walking down the street with his hands in his pocket beside a brown terrier dog on a leash with no master. Flash isn't holding that dog's leash, so I don't assume it belongs to him. What does belong to him? Not his thoughts either. Those belong to Pete and Liz. They're living in his mind, rent-free. Flash may not know that he's in a comic book, but he knows how his universe works. If you're looking for someone, Cosmic and Comic Timing are going to put you on their tail eventually. He can feel it. So he's walking. He's out in the world. And he is thinking violence. That by the time he's done with that clown Parker, he's going to wish he kept his nose in the books and not sniffing after Liz Allen. Remember what I said about cosmic timing? If you're looking for someone, cosmic and comic timing are going to put you on their tail eventually. Good, because JJ hops out of a yellow taxi cab right behind the Brand X kid, who probably wouldn't have noticed him. But JJ shouts, this is the place! Causing the second loudest loudmouth to spin around. Flash spots JJ, and everybody knows Flash loves the Daily Bugle, but he loves Spider-Man more, and he knows that JJ is the guy with a personal vendetta against his hero Spider-Man, and gets right to work hounding the miserable magnate. Pointing an accusing finger at JJ, he screams, Hey, Mr. Jameson, why don't you stop picking on Spider-Man in your paper? I'm president of his Forest Hills fan club, and I want to protest the policy of... JJ looks over his shoulder, spots Flash Thompson, probably remembers him from the supper club, when Green Goblin made Spidey look like a coward, and tells the kid, 
Look, you got beef, you write me a letter. I'm a busy man, kid. If you're gonna tell me, you better make sure you can afford to be way past busy enough. That's The Amazing Spider-Man number 17, The Return of the Green Goblin, or Vicious Vicissitudes, here on Me and My Friend Pete, back to. And Flash may be a jerk, but he has a very specific idea about how he believes people and companies should treat their supporters. And JJ giving him back talk, giving him lip when Flash is constantly spending his coin on Daily Bugles, ain't the way. That's a fine way to talk to one of your readers. I even used to deliver your papers after school. Not anymore. Not since you've been trying to steam people up against Spidey. JJ screams that his heart bleeds for the hot-headed teenager and breaks into a dead sprint in his dark chocolate suit up the street away from Flash Thompson who gives chase. JJ is running and puffing his cigar at the same time. He thinks he's gonna lose Flash once he gets to Reinhardt's house. But he's not giving the Brandex kid the shake. Midtown High's number one athlete is on his tail talking smack. Why don't you pick on the Human Torch for a while? Or those nutty X-Men? That's what he says! Nutty! And JJ in reply tells Flash to go play in traffic. JJ bursts through the front door of Reinhardt's house to open page 17. Glad that he doesn't need to wait for someone to open it, dashing past the vestibule goldfish, towards the light in the back of the hall. I'm very impressed with JJ. He's been sprinting for about a page now and smoking his cigar the whole time. Now, heading towards the back room where Reinhardt and Spidey are, JJ wonders if what Foswell told him about Reinhardt was true. He thinks if it is, the good doctor is going to regret ever meeting John Jonah Jameson Jr. But the brand ex-kid isn't done giving JJ an earful. He pokes his head into the front door saying, One more thing! I may just get my friends to pick at your paper! Flash going full privilege cancellation on JJ? <laughs> I like it! Curate cancelers, eat your heart out! Meanwhile, Spidey's in full-on diva mode. He has his hand to his head like he's fainted onto the couch as Reinhardt stands over him, smoking a pipe. Reinhardt tells Spidey that the problem he's facing, the hallucinations, the light shows, are all because of his dual identity. That if Spidey lets the world know who he really is, his issues would cease. But Spidey replies, I can't. I must never tell who I really am. I would hurt too many people. Reinhardt says, look, all you got to do is tell me who these people are and I'll be the judge of that. After all, you know you can trust me, don't you? You know I'm the only one who can help you. Spidey, staring at his hand, says Reinhardt's right. That being Spider-Man means nothing if he loses his mind in the process and anything is better than having hallucinations. But then, just at that most crucial, that most fateful moment. Jameson pushes the door to the office open just then, tirading. Reinhardt, I wanna talk to you. You phony, I found out all about you. You're no doctor, you got no license, you're a fraud. Reinhardt looks back, spots Jameson and tries to hold it together. He screams that he only needs a few more minutes, but JJ the tirader is not hearing it. He barges into the room. Reinhardt backs away from the door. Spidey hops up from the peace site couch as JJ lets loose with both proverbial barrels. I don't care what you need, you crook. I want to... What? Spider-Man, what are you doing here? What's going on? Oh, now I get it. You must be in cahoots with that fraud. I should have guessed. Spidey wants to know why JJ is calling his peace psychiatrist a fraud, but Reinhardt doesn't want Spidey listening to anything the miserable magnate is saying. No, don't listen to him. You mustn't. And then, just when it seems that things simply can't get any more confusing, 
The Brand X Kid dives headlong into the room through the door, monologuing the whole time. Tackling JJ, he screams, I heard someone shout Spider-Man's name. There you are. You're in trouble, Spidey. I'll help you. I've always dreamed of fighting at your side. JJ's hit around the waist, he's screaming, Let go of me, you teenage psychopath, before I call your keeper. And Reinhardt, grabbing his hearing aid from his lapel, is bolting, thinking, I'll trigger the control on my dummy hearing aid to create a diversion. He clicks a button on what we now know is a fake hearing aid, and the flashing lights that danced around Spidey all throughout this issue bounce around the walls of the room. But either everybody's crazy or Spidey isn't, because JJ and Flash Thompson hit the deck as super villains fill the room. Reinhardt was responsible for Spidey, quote, losing his mind. If you know anything about superheroes, and if you don't, you'll learn the first thing right now. They do not. They do not. They do not. They what? They do not is what I said. Like their minds messed with. Reinhardt breaks for the door and Spidey is on his tail in a second, screaming. No, you don't, Reinhardt. You're not getting away till I find out what this is all about. Reinhardt bolts through the adjacent room, an exact copy of his therapist's office, but completely upside down. Spidey a step behind him thinking that he wasn't imagining things. Reinhardt thinking he was so close, if not for that meddlesome, miserable magnate. Spidey, his confidence returned, tackles Reinhardt around the legs, shouting his best Ricky Ricardo. Translation, Reinie's got some splaining to do. Then, in a scene straight out of Scooby-Doo Mysteries, Spidey pulls the Mission Impossible level mask from Reinhardt's face to reveal none other than the Marvel Universe's greatest illusionist, the Leonard Nimoy look-alike, Mysterio. My people, if you recall, the last time Spidey thought he was losing his mind, it was because of Mysterio. That was in The Amazing Spider-Man issue number 13, The Menace of Mysterio. And that's the golden liability, the Zingaroo shuffle here on me and my friend Pete, one of my favorite episodes that I ever had the privilege of doing. If you recall, in that issue, Spidey thought he was losing his mind because Mysterio was committing crimes dressed up as Spidey. Spidey in that issue also thought about seeing a psychiatrist, but backed away from the idea because he couldn't risk his secret identity being uncovered. Back to Spidey webs up Mysterio and dumps him at the feet of J. Jonah in the next panel, saying he got the whole story out of old Boldone and that he and JJ better pick their doctors more carefully in the future. On 19, you know we get Mysterio doing what he does best. Full on, long horizontal panel monologue. He's out of his mask, but it's no less dramatic. I've wanted revenge on Spider-Man for years. He's too strong to fight man to man, but I felt I could beat him if I made him lose confidence in himself. If I made him think he was cracking up, but I had to choose the right moment. I waited and waited. And then when the bugle started printing those interviews about him, I felt the time had come. So I posed as a P psychiatrist. I planted doubts and fears in Spider-Man's mind. I knew he wouldn't be suspicious if I played my cards right. And it almost worked. My illusion succeeded perfectly. I watched him from a safe distance, operating my mechanical cat and bat and my special movies of his former foes. It was simple to arrange the trick offices. I merely used duplicates. By the time he reached here, he was so agitated. He was in a state of mind where he'd believe anything. It was all perfect. It should not have failed. The whole time he's talking, we see that he has been putting his entire bag of cinematography tricks 
to work. The special effects man knows what he's doing. The cat and bat we saw earlier, advanced animatronics that could create images through their eyes. That's why Spidey kept seeing his rogues appearing soundless on the rooftops. But that's only the beginning. The entire house, he built it on a conveyor belt and the rooms move forward and back and spin on their axis. Mysterio created a funhouse that threw Spidey completely for a loop. Again, hustling backwards, these men of great talent and resource, he could be the greatest funhouse creator ever, ever. This is the life he could live. He could take his knowledge clearly of animal anatomy and his knowledge of animatronics and create CNI animals that don't need to be cared for, right? He could do so much. That's just two things that I'm spitballing here. This is not on script, guys. This is just two things that I'm spitballing here that he could do with his abilities. But instead, he said he waited years, <laughs> years, one year to be sure. That's what he did with his power and skill, hustling backwards. Back to Mysterio, his head lowered in the next panel, finishes his monologue. I only needed another few seconds. I was about to make him unmask. I'd have learned his true identity. I'd have defeated him forever. But he was saved at the last minute. Saved by you. And Mysterio's in profile so we can't see his hands, but I'm sure he waves at JJ, who is watching in shock and screams. You mean, if I hadn't burst in Justin, if I hadn't interrupted when I did, Spider-Man would finally have been beaten? Flash Thompson, a smirk on his face, this entire time behind them, can barely contain his glee. JJ, realizing he ruined his chance to learn who Spidey really was, lets out an anguished howl while Flash breaks into laughter. He literally raises his hand to slap his knee and screams. Ha, so good old Spidey wins again. He beat Mysterio and you were the one who helped him. What a gag, what a gas. Wait till I tell the gang. Flash is smiling so hard, his eyes are shut closed. He throws his arms wide in a red negative space. Flash Thompson, the triumphant. What a day, what a triumph. I actually saw my idol in action. He even spoke to me, even if he did call me a fool. He spoke to me. Boy, even that useless, sneaky, meat-headed Peter Parker couldn't spoil the way I feel now. Wahoo! My man said, wahoo. In the final panel, Liz Allen is with her friend Connie with the good hair. Connie says she and the girl are going out for soda and wonders if Liz wants to come. Liz says sure until the Goldenrod kid strolls by with his hands in pockets. Liz flat leaves Connie ASAP. Racing towards Pete, she asks if he can help her study now and Pete says, I guess so. Kids just found out his mind isn't failing him. He might as well pay it forward. Connie is pissed. She folds her arms thinking that tomorrow, She's gonna snitch the flash about Liz spending time with Puny Parker to open page 20. How you go from wanting to get a soda with sis to snitching on her? Liz Allen doesn't belong to anyone. Meanwhile, poor May Parker is sitting in the den on her couch worried about her nephew thinking. If only I knew what was bothering Peter. The boy has no mother or father. I'm the only one to look after him. If only he'd let me. Pete comes home right then. Liz Allen a step behind him. May comes to the door saying she was worried about Peter. And Pete says he just stopped by to say he'd be at Liz's for a little bit, studying with her. May grabs Pete by the shoulders, telling him he can't give her frights like those. She tells him he's all she has left in the world and that if anything happens to him, dot, dot, dot. Of course Pete says this whole thing is embarrassing, but that's love, baby. Sometimes it can embarrass you, but it's always a beautiful thing. He says, I'm sorry I rushed out that way before, honest. I promise I won't do it again. No 
you worry about a thing. I'm just fine, okay? May says, all right, Peter, dear. Run along now. That's all May needs, communication. That's all most people need who care about you, communication. She lets the whole thing go immediately after Pete communicates. And she always does exactly that. Like, just tell me what it is, my man. I'm not out here trying to be worried. I have heart attacks from sneezing, kid. Give me a break. Work with me here. Pete and Liz get outside, and Liz is giddy as Aunt May watches from the doorframe. Liz is thinking that she's finally making progress with Petey. She's got him all to herself, and he's much more interesting than Flash, Fashion on Trash, Thompson. Pete's on a whole different type of time, though. He's thinking, I'd rather be spending my time with Benny, but if she's going to keep on writing to Ned Lee behind my back, I'll show her. What's that old saying about revenge? Before you embark on that journey, dig two graves? That's the one. Plus, this is just brain bravado. You've already been spending time with Liz, Pete. You could show Betty what she's missing by being more attentive. This is the easy way out and seems ego-driven. But my man Pete is 17. I get it. I didn't have any of the answers at 17, but I thought I did. There are no perfect people involved in this story right now. Not the kid in it, not the guy talking about the kid in it. Back to. In the final panel, Liz and Pete walk in the middle of the street. New York skyscrapers on both sides of them. Again, Manhattan must be like 10 minutes away from Forest Hills, Queens in the 616 universe. Above their heads, the spider signal and our cast of characters headshots. We've got from left to right, Flash Thompson, Mae Parker, Half Man, Half Amazing, Pete Rock, Betty Brent, and J. Jonah Jameson. The issue ends with a caption box. Thus, our tale is ended for now as we reluctantly leave our little cast of characters until next issue. Nothing conclusive has been settled between Peter and Betty, or between our hero and Flash Thompson, or indeed, between anyone. And yet, isn't that the way of life? We never know what surprises are around the corner, and neither does the youth called Spider-Man. And we're out. This one didn't have any knockdown, drag out bouts, but there was a lot of great art as Ditko conveyed a lot of emotion through body language and facial expressions. I have a soft spot in my heart for Mysterio just because the man can't not explain his plan. He's got elaborate monologues down to a science. And if you give him any type of audience, he's gonna give you the whole plan. I love to see it. That's the main episode this week. And that's true. That's the main episode. But there is more Me and My Friend Pete available for your listening pleasure right now. If you support this show on Patreon.com slash HSPP, patrons get a bonus show every week where I run through comic books from all over the multiverse of comics, past and present, from Marvel to DC to all points in between. This week, we're running through Kick-Ass number three by Icon, continuing the tale of Dave Lazuski's first romp into the world of superheroing. If we've got comics, we've got history, and I'll be your guide through it all. Join me. Head over to patreon.com HSPP and sign up to the Key Keeper or High Council tiers now to see what happens when you want to be a superhero and you start walking the path. Next week on the main episode, we end season one with issue 25 as Spidey goes one-on-one -on -one with a spider slayer for the first time with the miserable magnate J. Jonah Jameson himself at the machine's controls. You know it had to come down to this. It's going to be, in the words of Peter Parker, a gasser. This podcast is completely listener supported and your support keeps this crazy train on the tracks. I'm truly grateful you keep coming back and more grateful you allow me to be the conductor. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, a special thanks to the home team. 
That's the right minders, the big three, the key keepers, and the high council. Parker's 11. You got questions? Send them to me in my friend Pete at gmail.com and I'll go digging for the answers. All that said, that's all that said. Please like, please comment, please share, please take care, please think of the world and be true to yourself. And remember, with great power, you know you know the rest. Make sure you're being responsible. I'm out of here.